As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read a verse from Micah. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Father, we're so grateful that you hear us, not because we're worthy to come into your throne room, but because you have imputed to us the blood of Christ and the salvation that that brings and allowed us to come before you and to make our requests and our petitions and to offer you our thanksgiving and our praise. We know that you are the eternal one. You're the one who brings us joy and peace. You're the one who enables young men and women to, who have not had anything to do with the truth to hear the truth. And we're grateful, Lord, that you are at work and that you have not left us here on our own to struggle, but that you are the God who is eminent, Emmanuel. Lord, bless this hour, these few minutes that we have together now. Pray that you'll be glorified as we study your word. And I pray you'll touch each life today according to your great divine plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'd like to begin reading at verse 8. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came about as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering that, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Shalom, Samuel. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because they saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Well, we looked at this passage two weeks ago. And I'd like to just reiterate a little bit of what I was saying towards the end last time. Saul did not seem to, seem to, to see the incongruity here of disobeying the express word of God while seeking God's blessing. And then in an attempt to make him, uh, himself appear less guilty, he told Samuel, well, I, I had to force myself to do it. I didn't really want to do it, but you weren't here. The people were scouting, so I forced myself to do this, to make the burnt offering. Well, as I pointed out last time, Samuel <laughs> would have none of it. He didn't accept any of the excuses that Saul was giving him. He told him he was playing the part of a fool and that he had failed the test. He had failed the test. A later test is recorded in the 15th chapter, which we will get to soon. A very similar test, actually. And the purpose of that test was the same as this test, and that is to prove that to obey is better than sacrifice. The proof of our fidelity and our love for God is revealed in our obedience to his word. 
It is not revealed in our adherence to a particular formula or ritual. It's revealed in our obedience to his word. Daily submission to God's command is a truer form of worship than any kind of ritual or formula we can go through without that submission. World's full of people, and we, we know them, and, and, and sometimes we have been such people who have lived according to our own desires all week long, and then we rush off to church, mass, whatever it might be, uh, in, in an attempt to somehow placate God, convince God that we're really not such a bad person because we're there Sunday, quote, worshiping Him. We think that by performing rituals, we make up for a lack of true godliness in our lives. That's what the Israelites thought. And let me just read again that passage that I read at the very end of class <clears throat> two weeks ago because it's so important for us to be constantly reminded of that. In Amos chapter 5, we read these words, Amos 5, 21, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. What does God want, he says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God wants us to obey God wants to see the truth of his word made living in our, in our walk every single day. That our attitudes, our desires, our actions are all formulated, they're all formed by the truth of his word. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we read that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Why? Because it says there, if we do so, we will prove what the will of God is, what is good or right, what is acceptable, that is pleasing to God, and what is perfect or complete. We demonstrate these things as our minds have been transformed. And that's where the battle is, isn't it, today? The battle is for our minds. I even as Mary was talking this morning, the, the battle is for the mind. If she can convince those people, to begin, these young people, to begin to probe in these areas, then they have these questions. And then she has opportunities to, to, to teach truth without violating the law. You know, God works, no matter what the laws may be. And the only way that our minds can be renewed is by the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. That's the only way. There is no other way. It's got to be the Word saturating our mind with the power of the Holy Spirit enabling that to happen. Everything else can easily become mindless ritual with which we do nothing but salve our consciences and whitewash our guilt. We see this all the time today. The world is full of people who think they're Christians and all they're doing is salving their consciences and whitewashing their guilt by practicing whatever it is their form of Christianity expects them to practice. And they, they are not practicing justice. They're not practicing mercy. They're not allowing the Word of God to transform their minds because they're ignorant of the Word. They don't study the Word. It's tragic. Well, Samuel was very, very distraught by what happened here. Samuel was disappointed, and he spoke the fateful words that we read there in uh, verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not endure. 
He's not saying that Saul will not fulfill his kingdom because Saul will rule for his full 40 years or so. But he's talking about the fact that Saul's disobedience had cost him the privilege of founding a dynasty. Instead, God had already chosen a man to become Saul's successor. God is always, of course, way ahead of the game. God knows where things are going. God thinks, God knows our thoughts before we even think them. And Saul will discover eventually that not only will his successor not be from his own family, will not even be of his own tribe. And of course, the successor is not mentioned here in this passage, but we know by clear allusion that it's a reference to David. Let's read on, beginning at verse 15 here of 2 Samuel. Read to the end of the chapter. Now, then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them were staying at Gibeah of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies, one company to, uh, towards Ophrah in the land of Shual, another company towards Beth Horon, and the, another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboim towards the wilderness. Now no blacksmith could be found in the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, and his hoe. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, and the mattocks, and the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hoes. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's just for a moment here look again at where we're at. We're in central Israel here. Gilgal is down here in the Jordan Valley, uh, about 900 feet uh, below sea level in the valley there. And Gibeah over here, which is the home of Saul himself, is uh, up in the highlands uh, just a few miles north of Jerusalem. And as I mentioned to you before, if you ever go to Gibeah, you'll see it very clearly because the unfinished palace of, kings of uh, King Hussein of Jordan still sits up there. Uh, that was begun before the Six-Day War back in 1967. And then Michmash is about five miles up here to the north and slightly to the east in, in the rugged area of the highlands of Ephraim. Uh, and so the whole account that we're going to be looking at in this and in the next chapter, the 14th chapter, takes place in this small little area right here in what's called the Plateau or the Mesa of Benjamin, just north of the city of Jerusalem. As you go up from Jerusalem north, it, it kind of flattens out into this, uh, this plain. And Gibeah and uh, Gibeon and, and so forth are in that area. It's an area where today there's agriculture and of course a lot of grazing of uh, sheep in particular in that particular region. So this is where we are right in here. And Gibeah and Jonathan, we're going to be seeing in the next chapter, goes up to towards Michmash, and that's where he has his encounter, which just demonstrates beyond all shadow of, of a doubt the power of the Lord God. In spite of their fear of the Philistines, which of course had been evident as we read in the 13th chapter of Samuel, Saul and Jonathan moved the force that they had. Now this is the trained force. The 3,000 men had been gathered together to become sort of a permanent Praetorian guard or national army. He is moving this particular force from Gilgal down there up to Gibeah, which is Saul's home. 
they're at that point, they're only about five miles away from Michmash, which is where there was a Philistine garrison. We discovered this passage when Saul mustered his men and counted them. He found out, I don't have 3,000 men. I only have 600. Uh, there are only 600 guys left, 20% of his original force. Not that that force, even in its full strength, would match the Philistine force. Verses 17 and 18 of this particular passage seem to indicate that the Philistines set out raiding parties. And we're told there the directions or the places to which these uh, raiding parties went. And what you get, gather from that is that they, from Michmash here, they sent a raiding party to the north, they sent one to the e uh, west, and they sent one over to the east, overlooked the Jordan Valley. And so they went in three different directions, these raiding parties did. But what is interesting is it does not tell us what the purpose of these parties were, purposes were. Uh, it just simply calls them raiding parties or uh, groups of men who are moving out from the center and reconnoitering, uh, intimidating, whatever it is they might be, uh, have been doing. And so the scripture does not tell us what they did, nor does it tell us what happened to them. So I think the point of the mentioning of these is not what they did or what happened to them, but the point is to get the sense that Israel was being oppressed by the Philistines. And they were fanning out from this, this uh, garrison center and harassing the, the Israelites in the area. I think this helps us to build the background we need for the 14th chapter. Because in the 14th chapter, we find a two-man army <laughs> that goes out and wreaks havoc. And uh, this is the reason they do so. This condition of harassment, of oppression, is further highlighted in verses 19 through 22 of this passage. Now, archaeology has supported this passage where it tells us that the Philistines had a monopoly on the uh, uh, production of iron, iron tools, iron weapons, the sharpening of all of this. Some might say, well, no, wait a minute. Why should they have a monopoly? I mean, iron, iron usage was begun with the Hittites who live up in Asia Minor. And we know the Philistines came, up, came down from that area before they settled in this land when they were called the Sea People. But why would not the Israelites also have this technology? Well, the Israelites were still Bronze Age at this particular time. And certainly because of rubbing shoulders with the Philistines, they had acquired iron tools. And I believe there were blacksmiths in Israel. But what had happened was the Philistines had taken them all out. They had taken all the Israelite blacksmiths over uh, to Philistia or killed them, whatever the case may be, so that they maintained their monopoly on iron production and on iron ca the care for iron. And the reason is given here. There are two reasons why the Philistines wanted to maintain a monopoly on iron blacksmithing. The first was to keep the Israelites from manufacturing weapons. We don't want these guys to have the, the iron weapons and, and iron spears. Now, we have to contrast this. What are we contrasting it with? Well, bronze. Uh, bronze was the metal that was dominant throughout the Near Eastern world before iron began to uh, become important. Iron, the Iron Age to this part of the world comes around 2000 BC, but it, it doesn't come to the whole region all overnight. Whether it's Stone Age, Bronze Age, or Iron Age is determined by simply, ar by archaeologists, determining the ratio between bronze weapons and iron weapons, or bronze tools and iron tools. And as soon as iron becomes more prominent and more prevalent in the archaeological digs than bronze, then you say the area has reached the Iron Age. So both existed simultaneously. 
So the Israelites had bronze weapons and bronze tools, but bronze is inferior to iron. Uh, iron is stronger. It holds a sharper edge. It holds it longer. It's, it's less brittle. It's less malleable. And as a result, these are superior weapons. It's sort of like comparing somebody going to war with a single-shot rifle as compared to, compared to an M16, you know. Well, maybe not quite that drastic, but nevertheless, you are in an inferior position if all your weapons and all of your armor is bronze compared to iron or steel. Secondly, the reason for maintaining a monopoly on iron blacksmithing was to keep the Israelites dependent on the Philistines, constantly running down there to acquire, of course, new weapons or new tools, but to uh, pay their amount to have them sharpened. Now, the scripture tells us here, the actual word in Hebrew is pim, P-I-M, when it tells how much they paid to have the weapons cared for. Now, pim is not an, a word known except for the archaeologists have actually uncovered weights with that name on it. And they have discovered that this weighed about a quarter of an ounce, this little pim weight, weighed about a quarter of an ounce, which was equivalent to about two-thirds of a shekel of silver. But two-thirds of a shekel of silver was a high price to pay to just have a little bit of an edge put on your plow. And so what this is telling us, the only reason I think that the amount is given there is to help us to understand this is oppression. They are being oppressed. Raiders are oppressing them. They're being oppressed by the fact they don't have iron themselves, and they have to pay this high price to have their tools sharpened by the Philistines. Now, there is one thing that's a bit of a hard thing to understand here, and I don't think we can come up with the answer to it. Because it says in verse 22, So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan. I think we have to look at this and, and wonder why it says that. Because first of all, the Israelites probably did have bronze weapons. Maybe, probably not iron necessarily, but bronze. And second of all, why didn't they have any iron weapons except for Saul and Jonathan because even though they were not allowed to manufacture them they had defeated the Philistines in several battles and that when battles are fought I mean the dead are scattered all over the battlefield and, and the dead don't carry their weapons away <laughs> so there are all these weapons all over the battlefield and the Israelites certainly would have picked up swords and spears and other weapons from the battlefield now why none of those weapons were here we can only you know speculate could be those who picked them up are hiding them and not letting anybody else know where they are. Or it could be, it's possible, Scripture doesn't say this, that the Philistines had a kind of a sword hunt. Uh, if you go back in the history of Japan, you'll discover right about um, 16th, 17th century when the shogun wanted to make sure that, that there was no revolt against him. He had the samurai, who were the legitimate warriors, go through the whole country in what was called a sword hunt to make sure nobody but the samurai had swords. In other words, there was no Second Amendment to the Constitution in, in Japan. And the idea was to disarm the populace. And once the populace is disarmed, the government can do whatever it wants. That, of course, is one of the reasons, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a gun fan. My, my brother is, but I don't even own one. He has at least one or two or seven or 12. <laughs> and <laughs> but he lives out on 11 acres up in the mountains, so, you know, he, he's got a place to use them. But I still believe in the right of the Second Amendment because that was not put in there for no reason at all because governments become very oppressive. Just look at the countries in the world today which have legislated weapons out and those are the most oppressive governments in the world. So that's what apparently happened to Israel at this time. So here's Saul, here's Jonathan, two guys that are really armed. 
And the rest of the guys have got sticks and clubs, and you can do some harm with a club, but it's not quite as handy or as good. The passage ends with a statement that the Philistine, a Philistine detachment went out to guard the pass at Michmash. Now, you can't see the pass here. Uh, here's Michmash. I can't hold this thing still. But anyway, here's Michmash. And right between Gibeah and Michmash, about halfway in between, is a little town of Geba. Now, Geba was where a Philistine detachment had been before, and we read about that. Jonathan destroyed that detachment uh, before the events of chapter 13. And so the Israelites are, are now uh, in possession of that spot. And between Gibeah and Michmash is, is, a, uh, is a defile, a pass. And, and that gives us the background for chapter 14. So let's look at the uh, first part of chapter 14. Now the day that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man, now the day came that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come let us cross over to the Philistines garrison that is on yonder side. And he did not tell his father. And Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp crag on one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Boses, and the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose to the north opposite Michmash, and the other on the south opposite Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. And when both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will tell you, or literally we will show you a thing or two. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half a furrow in an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling, or literally a trembling of God. I think what we're going to see here is physical warfare, which is obviously spiritual warfare. I think Jonathan was frustrated. Jonathan was, of course, young, young warriors. What are you going to say? They're ready to go at it. I think he was full of frustration, but I think he also had faith. And I think that just comes out so overwhelmingly in this passage. He was a man of faith. Where did this man get this faith? Certainly not from his father, Saul. And he decided to test the strength of the Philistines. I, I think he was on a reconnaissance mission. 
just to check out things and he invited his armor bearer to join with him in what was obviously going to be, from a human point of view at least, a suicide mission. Since we are told that he did not tell his father of the plan, we can be sure this was not an authorized activity. He didn't have orders from headquarters that this is what he should do. Saul, with his 600 men, were encamped over at Gibeah, on the outskirts of Gibeah. And, and of course, it, it's very interesting there. It tells us that Saul himself was camped under a pomegranate tree. <laughs> it's a funny, it's, it's one of the wonderful things about Scripture. It gives you some intimate details about things at times. You wonder why. So he's under a pomegranate tree. And it could have been an oak tree or a, you know, a grapevine. Well, a pomegranate tree was a uh, special tree. Pomegranate was a special fruit in, in that day. I like pomegranate, but it's too much work. <laughs> but I think what we need to under read into this or, or read out of this is that it is not saying that while Jonathan was off serving Israel bravely, his father Saul was kicked back under a tree acting like a lazy lout. No, that's not what that means. Under the pomegranate tree is sort of a euphemism for the fact that he's the commander. His tent is under this special tree, which sort of indicates his superior position here. And I don't think it means anything more than that. Commentator Ronald Youngblood, uh, talking about the third verse, which seems a little bit like, you know, wh what's this doing in here? You know, we're talking about Jonathan and, and so forth, and it talks about Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh. Okay, so... It just says he's wearing an effort. It doesn't say he's doing anything. According to Young, he's saying the passage is giving us a parallel. A parallel between Saul and the descendants of Eli. And he says these words, Thus the rebuked King Saul is in company of the priest Ahijah of the rejected house of Eli. His own royal glory gone where else would we expect Saul to be than with a relative of the one called Glory Gone, Ichabod, you know? So it's sort of like bedfellows are, are together here. They're both rejected, and so they're together. And, and, and that's sort of the parallel that's drawn out of this. But the focus, is this, a focus of this passage is not on Saul. It's on Jonathan. And Jonathan is in such a contrast to his father. His father's a brave warrior. Jonathan's a brave warrior. But Jonathan has something his father doesn't have. He has faith in God, and he acts on that faith. The two sides of the pass between Gibeah and Michmash. Michmash is to the north. Gibeah is Giba. Giba, not Gibeah. Giba is to the south. And there's a pass in between. And at the head of the two sides of the pass are these two sharp crags. And the two crags are given names. The Israelites often did that. And, and we do that somewhat, too. We say, well, that's Dead Indian Pass, and this is whatever over here, you know. Boses, there's, there's no, uh, they don't know the meaning of, of the name Boses. It probably meant something to somebody then, but we don't know what the word means now. Sentiment, shrub. So there probably was some shrub growing up in the rocks someplace, and so they call that shrub cliff or something of that nature. And, and so... Jonathan is going to have to scramble down the southern cliff. Now, we're not told which is which here. But he's going to have to scramble down the southern cliff and then climb the northern cliff. Jonathan's statement here in verse 6, where he says, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And I think he spit the word out. 
uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. He's demonstrating here David-like faith. From the very beginning, as we study about Jonathan, we, we see the, the spiritual brother of David, not only because we know later on that Jonathan and David will become like spiritual brothers, but, but he reflects David in his glory in, in so many ways. It's, it's, it's truly amazing. He refers to the Philistines as uncircumcised. By doing so, he's saying two things. He's saying, first of all, they are the enemies of God, and therefore they are the enemies of God's people. The last phrase of verse 6 illustrates a mature faith. This is a young man. We don't know how old he is, but he can't be much over 20. He's pretty young. And he illustrates a very mature faith in God where he says, the Lord is not restrained to save by few or by many. I mean, this, this is a powerful truth and one that we need to keep reminding ourselves of because we can feel overwhelmed in our struggle with life and with the evil one because the evil one seems to be coming at us from every direction in every form of communication and in the philosophy of life of most Americans today. God is not dependent upon human strength or human cooperation in order to save his people or to accomplish his will. He doesn't need us to do his will, but he invites us to participate. He gives us the privilege to be a part of it, but he can do it without us. <laughs> he created the whole world without us. He didn't ask me. Well, let's see, how big shall I make the sun? Oh, well, this big, this big, you know. Should the moon be as big as the sun in diameter, or at least peer to the eye? Well, 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 no, he didn't ask me. He didn't ask you either, I don't think. He doesn't need us, but he invites us to participate in his plan. Jonathan was wise. God is going to give victory, and he can do it with two. He doesn't need a whole army of 50,000 men to do the job. And of course, I'm sure he was reminded of Gideon. You know, Gideon had 32,000 men, and God said to him, even though he was still outnumbered five to one, and God said, no, that's too many. Now, if you were, if you were Gideon, you'd say, no, wait a minute, Lord. We're outnumbered five to one, and we have too many? I, I think you got it backwards, don't you? <laughs> they have too many. <laughs> no, God says, you have too many. And so he cuts the army down to 10,000. Now they're only outnumbered 15 to one. And then God says, that's too many. It narrows the army to 300. Now, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's absurd. Well, 50, 300 goes into 150,000, what, 50 times? Oh, sure, I can handle 50 guys. Just give me a sword and... Well, I mean, you know, from human point of view, it's, it's totally absurd. And that's God's point. <laughs> from our point of view, it is absurd. We are absurd in some of the things we plan to do for God without Him. In 1 John 4, 4, we read, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. And, of course, the then, the them, refers to the false prophets and the spirit of Antichrist. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And now that's a truth that we keep reading and hearing, and, and we see it here and expressed in the life of Jonathan. I mean, he, even though this hadn't been written yet, he knew this to be true. Greater is God in me in, and in my armor bearer than in that whole detachment of Philistines up there. Now, we don't know how many Philistines were all together. We know he kills 20. But that says the, when he, it's, it just says when he first struck them, there were 20. And, and then it goes on. And, and, but the whole group becomes 
scared to death of two little guys. Why? Because greater who was he who was in Jonathan and his armor bearer than he was with the Philistines. Jonathan was not acting in a foolhardy manner here, but on basis of his belief that Yahweh is almighty and that he would empower him to destroy the enemies of God's people. This is where I see it, David in him. Remember when David, when David, just, he was a young man and, and he went to the camp and his brothers were there and, and Goliath kept coming out and cursing and yelling and screaming and, and nobody would go out and he said, why is nobody fighting? Why is anybody shutting up that loudmouth, uncircumcised Philistine? And they all looked at him like he was out of his tree. You know, you, oh sure, you want to go out there and face that guy? He's nine foot six. And David was probably only about five foot six. Even though if you go and, and see Michelangelo's David, he's 17 foot tall. <laughs> you know, he'd have made Goliath tremble and bite his nails off. Uh, you know. As later would be true of David, Jonathan was motivated by a refusal to allow these pagans to defy his God and to oppress his people. You know, a lot of times our anger is, is, is ill-motivated and ill-aimed, but if our anger is on behalf of our God, of his name, then it's godly anger. And that was the anger that Jonathan had. I think he knew that his life wasn't charmed. He didn't think he was some kind of an Achilles who'd go out there and the arrows would bounce off him. I think he knew that just because he trusted God didn't mean that he might not die. I don't think that was in his mind. I don't think he thought he could just take on the enemy and, and not receive, receive any wounds or, or possibly even die. But he just knew he had to carry out what was in his heart, what was right. He was a man driven by principle, and he felt like that principle was worth li risking his life for. And uh, let me just kind of bring it together with what we're focusing on this week here at Neighborhood Church. This is World Missions Week. And I think many... I, I trust all of our missionaries are just like Jonathan. They operate on the same principle, rescuing people from the jaws of death, of hell, of damnation, rescuing people from spending eternity with the evil one is worth risking their lives for. And many of our missionaries are literally in life-threatening situations. You heard last week from Andy Gardner about conditions in Guinea and how tragic they are. And God's people are in, in, on the front line, as it were. And uh, there are many countries in the world where to stand up for Christ is like signing your own death warrant, in effect. And yet, they're there, and they're there because the principle they're there for is important, and that is to uphold the name of God, to defend His name, and to save people from damnation. What I think is really wonderful here is that Jonathan's armor bearer doesn't hesitate for a moment. You lead, I'll follow. Where you go, I'll go. I mean, it's almost a Ruth-Naomi relationship here between Jonathan and his armor. We don't even know the armor bearer's name, but he was a young man who had a kinship in some way with Jonathan, and, and of course, the young man couldn't help but think, Jonathan wants to climb this cliff and go up there and fight all those dudes, just the two of us. Sure, Jonathan, let's do it. I think he probably was fully aware that this might be their last uh, activity together, that they probably would be killed. But he wanted to do what he felt Jonathan needed to do. And Jonathan was dedicated to defending the name of his God and, and his people. And so they went together.
So next week we'll look at see what happened. Of course, we read it in the passage. It's, it's a really, not only is it a dramatic story, it is just full of what we need to apply in our lives today of the reality of God in this warfare. He is imminent. He is here. He's with us. And he enables us to do what we must do on behalf of God's kingdom. Some of you may know the book, 31 Days of Prayer. And for this day, it seems very appropriate. Let me just read the prayer for this day since it's fitting that be this being the last day of our World Missions Week. Father, give your people hearts that burn with your longing for the good news to be preached throughout the world. And begin this work in my heart. May we desire what you so deeply desire to do, to bring people into your family and mold them into the image of Christ. May we faithfully invest our prayers, our time, and our money in what is on your heart. Bring a revival of urgent prayer among all your people. May more churches everywhere in the world become missions-minded. May they send out people who are close to you, empowered by you, equipped to serve, and pray effectively. Show me, Lord, which mission groups and which parts of the world, which cities, countries, or people groups you most want me to pray for and enable me to pray with a growing faith, confident that my prayers indeed make a difference in the world, removing mountains that hinder your work and bringing about impossible things. Lord, you're in charge of the harvest. Cause countless people to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to you. Do this in every tribe, every language, and every religion, even in the most hard-to-reach places and the most resistant religions. And the passage of Scripture, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Satan clearly wants us to believe that prayer is a meaningless activity. But through prayer, God gives us a role to play in the work that's done. I've mentioned this to you before, quoted it to you before, but Oswald Chambers says that, uh, I forgot exactly how the phrase goes, but you don't pray in order to empower the work, something to this effect, but prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. So I hope as we pray this morning that this will be the work 